Coach Guline, you are the most requested guest. I've gotten texts and emails from people and they're all like, all right, you've done 25 episodes of the Path to Fall podcast. Where's Coach Goo? Well, I'm glad I can make it. <laughs> I hope I can live up to the, uh, the anticipation. Yeah, well, it's great to have you in. We've been trying to schedule for a little bit now, but yeah. you're a busy man. You're trying, you're, you're hard to nail down. Well, and it's been, you know, just a crazy year, right? Yeah. But, you know, glad to be here. Yeah. How is, um, how's math class going? I always see you on the second floor, Carrie Hall, doing some tutoring and some extra work with guys, right? Yes. Is that what you're doing there? Yeah, sort of like a hybrid math lab, right? So we used to have it upstairs. Um, in the little smelly room, but we'd be way over capacity. I think mm -hmm. there are like three people allowed in there now. So mm -hmm. kind of do it out in the open um, and have kids working in person and some kids at home. And it is a very sort of like 2020, 2021 school year activity. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, it's just great to connect with people. And, and I think also, you know, particularly with kids being home so much, um, I think they need more kind of one-on-one -on -one assistance. It's pretty hard to learn through a screen. Um, I think even if you've got a really good teacher and you're a really good student, um, so I'm just glad to be able to help uh, help those guys out. Yeah, I'm thinking back to my time in high school. I think I went into the math tutor, like the, we had a little kind of a room like this almost. Yeah. Was the, where the math tutor, she didn't teach there, Miss Roche. Okay. She didn't teach there at all, but she was just there for extra help. And I think yeah. I went in there every day because yeah. math was my being of my existence. Oh, really? Oh, it was very hard. I mean, I got through and I did pretty yeah. well on it, but it was because I went to Miss Roche every day. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we have all sorts of, I mean, we've got really, really strong students coming too. And then some guys that are struggling. Um, and I think one of the things kind of institutionally we we're trying to, to emphasize is that, you know, coming in for help, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you're a weak student or even really that you're struggling. Right. I think a lot of times it's just you know, trying to get some clarification or, or sometimes talking through what's going on is really helpful. Um, you know, and some people just um, just looking for things to do in the afternoon. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was saying the other day, like some of my classes aren't completely full right now. Like I'll have a couple guys in there and everyone yeah. else is at home. And I'm like, well, don't you, don't you guys want to come into school and at least have face to face interactions and get out of your room and leave the house? I mean, even though it's not normal and we're not in class and seeing people all the time, I at least see you in the hallway and say, yeah. hey, hello, and have a five-minute conversation. It's something. Yeah, I think maybe the hardest thing to, to reproduce is that 10 minutes before class and the 10 minutes after class, right, where it's not so much content-driven, but really it's it's just catching up with people, right, that that aren't close enough friends that I would call out of the blue, right? And I think about teachers too, and I think about kids with each other. Um, it's that like second layer of friendship that I think is really struggling. I think people are keeping pretty close tabs on their their like inner circle of friends, but the people that they run into casually, the people that they see at lunch, you know, and are happy to see, um, the people that they're excited, you know, because they've got math class together and they always, and their, their class after that's together and they always walk to Bryn Mawr. The two of them, I, I think that we're missing a lot of. And, and that's been really hard to find sort of a surrogate for, right? We can like simulate math class and we can simulate, um, you know, the one-to-one -one conversations. Um, but it's much harder to simulate those sorts of things. And, and I think there's a loss there. I, I, I certainly feel it personally. I know the kids do. For sure. 
Um, how are you designing your classes and making math? What are those classes, by the way, that you teach? Yeah, so I'm teaching um, Algebra 2, which is freshmen, and then um, Pre-Calculus, which is juniors. Okay, so Algebra 2 and Pre-Calculus. How are you designing your classes so that it works during yeah. COVID? Because for English, for me, I actually feel like I'm pretty lucky to teach a humanities course because I get all my kids on Zoom and we can still talk about the reading and the book and the characters as we would. It's yeah. not as fun, obviously, and, you know, we're not looking at each other and we're not in the same room, but we can still do it. Math, I think, and science are a little bit more difficult in my mind. Yeah. So I think the first thing for me, at least, <clears throat> is not trying, not pretending things are normal. Right. So just to, to recognize just sort of as an axiomatic statement, right, things are not normal. And so I'm not going to just try to teach the way I would normally. Right. That's that's just not going to work. So, so what I've done is I've created for each lesson um, an asynchronous module. So basically it's, it's about one page and it looks like what their notes would have looked like in a normal time. So it's got different topics and it's got different practice questions. Um, and I've made videos for each of the practice questions, sort of, you know, 90 second videos explaining how to do it that are linked into the page, right? So that one option, the kids who are at home can basically check in for maybe the first five minutes or so of class, make sure they're connected, make sure that we have a chance to talk, make sure they remember that it, this is not just me, that I'm part of a group. Um, and then if they want, um, they can sort of log off and do those questions or do that work on their own. Um, the freshmen aren't learning that way that that's just not sort of in their comfort zone um, but some of the juniors are for, for the first maybe like 40 or 50 minutes um sort of focused on like what are the most important things in this lesson um and more kind of luxury than i would have been in kind of a normal world but but just trying to make sure that we get through sort of the important pieces of what that lesson would be mm -hmm. and then the people who were at home um, I, I kick them off Zoom with probably about 20 or 25 minutes left in class. They've got some work they can do kind of on their own at home. And then I can spend that time with the kids who are physically in the room, um, really focused on giving them the, the kind of personal attention that, that frankly they deserve. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard to give when you're trying to juggle, you know, the, the kind of in the flesh kids right in front of you also with the people who are at home. Um, and so there's kind of three different layers. Um, and the nice thing is, you know, when they're doing their homework, it, if they don't know how to do something, they can look it up. And, and it's fairly easy for them actually to find a similar question, watch this quick video. Um, and most of the time that's enough for them to, to sort of figure out what they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been trying to do the same thing with my English classes in that I didn't do as much in the first semester because I was trying to balance the hybrid yeah. and class would be, you know, similar to what it typically would be just in a funky situation with 10 kids on Zoom and four kids in front of me. Yeah. But now I'm thinking these four kids, they've come to school. They're here in the flesh. And yeah. They don't get much personal interaction. So for 10, 15, 20 minutes, give the Zoom guys something to do and, and just interact, even if it's, you know. Even if it has less to do with English, it's just being in the same room and learning from each other about whatever. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, a huge part of our job, especially right now, right, is not just teaching 
kids math, but, but supporting them personally and emotionally in a time that's, it's hard for everybody, but it's especially hard for some of them. And that I think that maybe our, our probably our more important role is making sure that they're as healthy mm-hmm. personally and emotionally as we can make them. Because, you know, you know this, if you're not, if you're not right, you can't learn math and you can't learn English and all the, all those other things can't happen. So that's got to be sort of making the, the student feel comfortable and welcome and safe and supported and connected has to be a precursor to, to all those sort of content based things that, that really are important to us, but, but that you can't do until you've, you've sort of established that baseline. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're in high school, you're not as aware of the importance of that maybe as like for me, I understand. And and I'm sure the same is for you. You understand that you need to get your run in every day. You need to go outside and you need to do yoga or whatever it is that you do when you're in high school. It's like, you might just wake up, roll out of bed, you know, five minutes before class, jump on your zoom, do your three classes that are 80 minutes each, go downstairs, eat lunch, come back up, do your homework in front of the screen. When that's over, you go on your phone, you go on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, you're on your screen, and then maybe you watch some TV at night. That's a lot of time, it's not healthy. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things is learning to see school as more than completing a series of tasks. Um, And and this was something really I struggled with, certainly when I was in high school, is you've got this like checklist of things you need to do, right? I've got my math homework and then I've got, you know, English vocab and then I've got my reading and then I've got my history time, right? And all these things and just spend my day trying to, to, to just literally go through the list and check things off rather than being engaged in, in sort of a deeper learning. Um, and I think part of our job as teachers is to get them past that, right? Because that's natural, I think. And certainly you think about Canvas, the first thing they see when they when they log in is a to do list. Mm -hmm. But but like homework 30 is not that's not a learning objective. Right. That's an assignment that's due in class tomorrow. Right. And the learning objectives are deeper. And and as much as we can, we've got to push them into that deeper learning. And, and, And so much of that is creating a personal connection with the students, you know, certainly as a 17 year old. I was working way harder in classes when I felt connected to the teacher. And some of them were, were super friendly and some of them were not. But, but I felt like th- there was something there. They cared more than what's his grade going to be in history class. Mm-hmm. And, and that made me work really hard. And that made me learn in ways that, that I didn't with teachers that were more kind of like superficial and that we're doing their own sort of teacher checklist, right? So Mm -hmm. like, I'm supposed to give three tests. I'm supposed to collect six homeworks. I'm supposed to write comments, you know, twice each year. Um, I think when teachers approach their work in that checklist fashion, it's going to basically be reflected in their students. Mm, Absolutely. Um, For something like math. So I, I'm hearing exactly what you're saying about connection with the teacher because I've always felt that way. Even if it was a class that I didn't like that much, if, if I had a math teacher and I was never a math guy who was interesting and cool and had a sense of humor and connected with me about something outside of math, outside of school, 
I was all in on that. Like I would go to Miss Roche and do everything I needed to do because not only I wanted to do well in that class, I wanted to do well for that teacher who I like. Um, but I also, for humanities courses like history and English, I've always felt an intrinsic connection to that material in the first place. Right. Math and science for me in high school, especially, I never felt that in intrinsic connection. Um, what about for students, like how do you spin, spin math in a way that forces students to say, all right, this is, this is going to matter down the line for me. I'm learning objectives that are going to be important in the future. Because to be honest, I've never done a calculus yeah. uh, assignment or an equation since I left junior year math. Yeah. How, do you, how do you kind of get them to buy in that this is important for your mental processes and your thinking um, you know, for years to come? Well, I think that's the key, right? So I think unfairly math has been sort of reduced to computation right and i think if you pursue math really after you get through the calculus sequence you'll find sort of how what a misconception that is right so i as as a college math major would go semesters without ever touching a number and so there you know there's this aspect of math where there are skills that are important right the same way in english if if you don't have don't understand grammar you can't write. Mm -hmm. but, but the goal of grammar is not to get good at grammar. The goal of grammar is to be able to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. right, so in math, we have these skills. And the, the goal of the skills is not to get really good at factoring polynomials, right? or not to get really good at taking derivatives. It, it's this thinking process. right? So I would argue math is a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking really rigorously that you can apply to really almost any kind of future endeavor in your life. It's a way of like reading the newspaper as a mathematician means looking at people's arguments really carefully. And is this, does the logic here hold or, or, or is there something missing? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it, it means um, structuring arguments in a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think those skills um, really transcend the subject and and apply, you know, to, to, to tons of different things. You know, the w when I graduated, you know, I think about the people who were, who were math majors with me. So a huge number of them went went to NSA, which which is very sort of technical mathy stuff. But but the second biggest group went to law school, hmm. and and they went to law school because they were trained as really careful critical thinkers, hmm. and and that's what. A, a college math major really is about much more than, you know, being able to solve a bunch of equations faster than somebody else. Right. Yeah. And I always think of law school as kind of a track for an English major. And I never really thought of it for, for math too, but that completely makes sense because you're structuring different yeah. parts of equations to make a rational solution. There's one right answer. Yeah. Um, cool. Were, were you always, or go ahead. No, go for it. Were you always, did you always want to teach? Did you want to no. go to law school? Did you want to do something else? <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to fly fighter jets. Really? Be, I mean, everyone was in the yeah. 90s. <laughs> um, and, and then I realized that um, that apparently you need perfect vision um, to be a pilot. And, and I 
was, was not really very close to that. So I thought the next best thing would be to design fighter jets. So I applied to college as, as an engineer um, and, and, and went to a liberal arts school um, and was really excited about being an engineer until, um, you know, you, you get there and you meet with your advisor and class hasn't even started yet. And, and you go to make your schedule, you know, and you go to a liberal arts school, at least I did, because you have I was interested in all these different areas. And so this was going to be great. I was going to get to get to study engineering, um, but also take classes in history and take classes in religion and take classes in these other subjects that that to me are, are, are really interesting. And, and my advisor handed me my schedule for the next four years mm -hmm. um, with all the classes filled in. Hmm. And and I said, well, this, you know, totally defeats the purpose of coming to school here. Like if I wanted to just take engineering classes, I would have gone to an engineering school, um, you know, but I chose to come here. And, and he said, well, you know, at Swarthmore, you can you can take the classes you want unless you're an engineer. Um, and, and if you're an engineer, then we choose them for you, basically. So, so I asked him, you know, what's the, what's the closest thing to engineering where I can still take the classes I want? And he said, it's a tie between math and physics. Um, so, you know, took a math class, took a physics class, took a history class, and um, a philosophy class. N not my thing. Um, and, and, you know, you talked about teachers earlier, loved my math teacher, had, had one of these transformational math teachers, um, a guy named Kai Campbell. Um, and, and couldn't stand my physics teacher and became a math teacher literally because of him. Isn't that crazy how yeah. you have one teacher, like my physics teacher sophomore year, if I didn't like, you know, yeah. him or her, yeah. I, I don't like physics. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So it really is in, in such an important job as a teacher because you completely changed your track from engineering to math and physics to just yeah. math because of the teacher because of that one guy now i was fortunate i had fantastic math teachers when i was here but but that's how i ended up on the engineering track what got me on the the math as a college major track was was him hmm. so you went to swarthmore for, for a year one yeah. year and then how did you get to virginia you went to virginia yeah um virginia was was i think in a lot of ways the anti-swarthmore um swarthmore just it just not the place for me so it went from a very small um very liberal um private school with north of baltimore to you know in some sense the opposite a pretty conservative um much bigger public school south of baltimore hmm. was your move from Swarthmore to Virginia because of the size of the school, because you weren't happy with the, the major, or was it sports? What really drove yeah, you to it was, switch? It was a lot of things, right? So, you know, so Swarthmore, um, you know, got rid of their football program when I was there, um, which was hard. But I think even that aside, um, it, it just wasn't the right place for me. I, you know, I think the um, sort of the scene there, the, the way, I'm not sure. I, I just, it's really the only time in my life I felt like I legitimately didn't fit in. Hmm. And, and it didn't matter what I would have done. Like, I wasn't going to fit in. It's the only time in my life that I was negatively labeled as an athlete, right? And with the sense that, like, because you're an athlete, like, you don't belong here. And it didn't matter how well I did in my classes. And it didn't matter how much I participated in in class, right? Like I couldn't shed that label. 
Um, and it made me sort of self-conscious and, and, and self-aware in, in a way that wasn't good. You know, now, and frankly, I learned more in my nine months there than I learned any other time in my life. And I think it's really made me way more empathetic with people um, sort of in minority groups, right? So, so very different, obviously, being a, being a football player at Swarthmore than it was, you know, to be a black American, you know, that was in 2000. And yet, on a much sort of less pervasive scale, I, I, I think I felt some of the things that they felt, right? That, that something about the way I looked, something about the way I walked made people judge me in a way that was, that was very um, out of touch with the way I viewed myself. Um, and, and I think largely unfair. Totally unfair, especially coming from a place like Gilman, which yeah. sports and athletics go hand in hand. Like yeah. If you're on a team, you're supposed to be on a team, right. right? Everyone's supposed to play sports. Sports are virtuous at Gilman. Right. And if you go somewhere where sports are kind of, you know, you're looking at someone who's very much academic and loves school and is a math major yeah. as lesser because they're on the football team, right? That, that can definitely make you feel like that. I'm sure. Yeah, it was hard. Um, so Virginia, what what was that like going to UVA after? So you, so you stay I, on that math track there? Yeah, or? so I was a, a math and history um, double major there. And, and again, right, the contrast between those two departments was for me really great. So, on, you know, on one hand, one is is all reading and writing and the other is, is all critical thinking. Uh, and that was good for me just thinking about my day, being able to to kind of go back and forth and not be doing the same thing. But the, the history program there is huge. It's one of the biggest majors. Um, and the math program was tiny. And so it was nice to have both, right? To be able to go into the math building, which was in a converted ROTC dorm and still had showers in the bathroom and like, you know, spray paint stenciled numbers on the door and literally know every single person in the building because there were so few of us, hmm. and then be able to go even as, as an upperclassman into a history class and know a third of the people because the history program was so big and there, there were also so many people who were not history majors taking, right, so, so no non-math major is taking, you know, abstract algebra three, right? right? But there, there are plenty of non-history majors that, that wanna take, you know, American Civil War. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I think those sort of two very different experience, major experiences were, were healthy for me mm -hmm. um, and really showed, I think, different sides, different aspects of the university. Yeah, it's very rare to have a math major who's take, you know, also involved in history. So, yeah, although one of my really good friends was a math English double major. So, mm -hmm. um, so you can do it. You can do it. Yeah. yeah and I did, I had one one class that I could count for both degrees, which is good. Um, a, a, um class called um, History of Mathematics. <laughs> um, which was which was perfect for me. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that could be an elective here at Gilman History of Math. Yeah, so we've got a history of science, which is which is pretty similar. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like, uh, you know, we've talked about transformative teachers, a wonderful um, teacher who actually had tenure in both departments. So, so a woman named um, Karen Parshall, who taught math and history, you know, at UVA at this, you know, prestigious Oh, wow. University, right? And I mean, I think especially as a woman, um, pretty remarkable accomplishment hmm. um, in that era. So what led you from your interest in math 
to back to Gilman to teach? Yeah. Like, how did you get into teaching after you're, you were involved in math, you're involved yeah. in football and history? How did you get back here? Yeah, so I think, so pretty pretty roundabout road. I think in, in the immediate term, um, I was <laughs> I was pretty hard to manage as a high schooler. Um, I think certainly for my parents and, and also probably for my teachers and coaches. And I think came to realize in college what a gift they'd given me um, and, and almost got into teaching almost from a sense of guilt, right? Like, like, like I've done such a disservice to these people who've dedicated their lives to helping people like me and that the only way I can possibly like begin to get the like cosmic balance sheet back to even is, is to try to provide that experience for some other people. Um, and, and that certainly got me in the door. Um, it, it, it turns out that <laughs> that, that kind of energy isn't going to keep you in the, in the business very long. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, so started teaching actually in Nashville, um, a, a school called Montgomery Bell Academy. Can I, can I ask you a quick question sure. about that before I, we talk about yeah. Montgomery Bell? Um, so was there like a moment when you were at UVA or, or that you, that, that struck you that these teachers at Gilman had done this service for you or, or had helped yeah. you and now you wanted to do that was there was there a certain time that that happened or was that just gradual realization yes for you? so i don't remember the sort of lightning bolt moment um i did all all three summers in college i worked at residential summer educational programs right so we um worked with a program here called upward bound um bill green ran it um and and it's a federal program, but it basically takes low income and first generation college bound students and gives them support, basically tutoring during the school year. And then I forget if it was four weeks or five weeks or six over the summer, an actual residential program. We lived in the dorms over at Notre Dame College and and did classes here during the day. And so the two summers there were, were really transformative. I'm actually living on dorm with students who who first off very close in age so i would have been 19 and they're you know 15 16 17 and geographically incredibly close right so so from my house to their house you know you're talking two miles three miles and yet our life experiences you know it would be hard to imagine you know more fundamentally different childhoods mm -hmm. um and so not just to work with them a little bit, but to actually be with them 24 hours a day, right? To eat our meals together, to share a bathroom, um, to be on the same hall of a dorm building, to go to class together. That was a really important experience for me. First off, to understand um, kind of how good I had it, right? Like, like, like in a lot of ways, how nice my childhood was, but also to, to see the kind of shared humanity that, that we have as people that's so much more important than the way we look or where we live or what school we go to um, or what our parents do. That was a really important um, time for me becoming an educator. Hmm. Sure. And so going into your senior year, you kind of knew that this was the path that you wanted to go down was, was the education path and continuing yeah. with teaching. D yeah. D yeah. Definitely. By the time I was an upperclassman, I, w I was that's what I was going to do. 
and then Montgomery Bell was next. That was the next yeah. step. That's in Nashville. I was Nashville, talking to yeah. I was talking to Johnny Foreman the other day, and he was telling me he was down in Nashville for some maybe yeah. convention or something, and he ran into Jeff Gulen. He's like, Jeff Gulen, what are you doing yeah, down here? Exactly at Montgomery Bell. You got to come back to Kilman. Yeah, it's funny. You talked about kind of um, role of chance in our lives earlier. So, um, was working with a with a placement agency trying to get a teaching job, and pretty early in the process. And I'd sort of set pretty narrow geographic bounds. So I wanted to be basically in, in Baltimore, Annapolis, DC, Richmond, Philadelphia, someplace like that. And, and, and they said, you know, you really ought to look at this job in Nashville. And I basically told them, you know, I'm going to go and like do it as a practice interview. Like they're going to fly me out there. It's going to be my first time like on a plane going to a job interview. I'm going to spend the night, right? That's a very different thing than going someplace for the day. It's a really good school. Um, I'm going to get to teach some mock classes. I'm going to, I'm going to do it and just for the experience and, and, and go out there and sort of a whirlwind kind of 36 hours and, and end up getting a job offer literally before I got on the plane to go home. Um, you know, and so the first question always is, so how long do I have to think about this? Mm-hmm. And, and the headmaster there, a guy named Brad Joya, said, well, normally we give people 48 hours, but we're going to give you 72 or something. Like, we're going to be really generous with you. Like, you've got three days to think about, like, the future of your, your life. Um, and and it, was, it was, I think, over spring break. So I think I came straight back to Baltimore. Um, and, and by the time I got home, I had, had really decided that was what I was going to do um, and, and told my parents then that I was going to be. Nashville. Yeah, moving to a very different part of the country. Sounds amazing. I need to get to Nashville, but it's a very cool town. What was what was what's Montgomery Bell? I was looking up some pictures. It looks like a really cool school. It's incredible. Yeah. Um so so Gilman ish and so it has the kind of Gilman role in um Is it in all boys? All boys, um seven through twelve, um old, so so eighteen sixties founding, um, and conservative. Uh, the most conservative. Uh, so far fewer independent schools in Nashville than in Baltimore. But but this is that's the conservative one. That's the one where, um, you know, your sports are really important and school is really important. Um, it's the same architecture, right? It's the kind of like Georgian, you know, brick buildings, white columns. Uh, on the surface, it really felt very much like Gilman. I think the more I was there, the more I realized in a lot of ways, probably not very much like Gilman. But but if you if you walked around for 10 minutes there and you walked around for 10 minutes here, you'd, you'd feel a lot, a lot of the same things. Hmm. Was Gilman not an option for you when you were looking for a job? Did you try to come back to Gilman immediately I, or, or was I it did. Montgomery Bell? So so didn't have the fellowship programs then um, and and didn't have an opening at the time a math opening and I really wanted to come back to Baltimore. Um, you know, I, I, you know, thought about working at McDonald, thought about working at Loyola. Um, I got the, the, the MBA job really quickly. Um, and so didn't even really have time to, to apply here. And, and at the time was, was maybe disappointed to be going away. I, I think as a 22 year old, the worst thing I could have done was come straight back here. Yeah. Um, it would have been too comfortable and, and I would have had too much trouble differentiating between myself 
as a former student of much of the faculty, um, myself as a sibling of many of the, like friends of siblings of many of the students. Yep. Um, I didn't know enough about teaching. I wasn't good enough at it then. Um, and and that would have been, you know, it's it's what I wanted and it and it shouldn't have been, right? It would have been really bad for me. Um, so I was out there for two years, um, had an unbelievable experience, had, had really two remarkably um, kind and generous mentors. Uh, who really taught me how to teach and and frankly welcomed me into into their family right so I you know my department chair I had has a son my age and I was at his house for Thanksgiving because there wasn't enough time to come home and so he had me over right and I would go to his house to watch the Super Bowl and I would those those smaller holidays when there isn't enough time to travel mm -hmm. it it was just an open invitation I went with him and that, you know, as somebody kind of starting living, you know, on my own for the first time, paying my own bills m meant so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, and by the way, an incredible master math teacher and a football coach. And right, we had so much overlap in terms of our lives and our interests and, and basically just followed him around like a little puppy dog <laughs> um, trying to learn as much as, as, as I could. Was your experience teaching for the first time, even though you had a mentor and, and someone to kind of take you under their wing, yeah. were you kind of thrown into the classroom like with that with like to make your own syllabus and figure it out on your own? Or was everything kind of predetermined from your mentor? No, they uh, gave me a book. Gave you a book and said, go teach. First week of June. Yeah. I, um, so I was lucky. I taught summer school the summer leading up to it. And so I at least got to meet some people and spend some time on class, uh, on campus. <laughs> but um, one of my strongest memories, right? So you think about like, oh, like my first whatever, and, and you build it up in your mind. And I remember um, I had freshman geometry in the room, like directly above the, um, the faculty room. Um, with these kids. So they're clueless too, right? They're freshmen. They have no idea. And, and we sort of like, kind of like awkwardly go in the room and we're all staring at the clock waiting for it to get to eight o'clock. And, <laughs> and, and it gets to eight o'clock and I wanted so badly to say something really profound, right? Like this is going to be my first words as a real teacher. And it was something like, welcome to geometry class. My name is Jeff Guline, right? Like, like the, the <laughs> like most horrible thing. And, and I don't know what I should have said, but it, it shouldn't have been that. It's a lot of pressure to put on yourself for the first the first words out of your mouth. I'm yeah. I'm sure every teacher said. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. And, you know, and it's funny. It, being a new teacher teaching freshmen is so much fun, right? Because you, you, you come in together and clueless. Mm -hmm. And that group really grew up. We grew up together. Yeah. And, and the same thing, frankly, happened when I came back here and I was a new Gilman teacher. Um my closest student relationships are with the, the 2010s um, because they were freshmen my first year back. And, and that experience of learning together, me as a, as, as a newish teacher, new on Gilman's faculty, and them as, as new high school students, kind of both of us going through those, those waters together was really fun and, and something I've not been able to recreate sort of as an older teacher. Hmm. So was Johnny Foreman's trip to um, 
Montgomery. Was that yeah. when you were kind of sucked back to Gilman, or was was I'm it not sure if I so other factors. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can use names in this story. I got a um, I got a, a phone call from a a close. So Eva Turner was the head of the high school um, at Gilman at the time, and I got a phone call from a close friend of hers, basically saying. Um, there's a math job at Gilman. It hasn't been publicized yet, but you know she'd sort of like for you to apply. Like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted to come back. Now I was I was terrified of the the head of MBA, and um, and was nervous that if he knew that I was looking for other jobs. Um, that was going to come back on me and like reflect poorly on me as a, um, like as an employee basically. And so I, I applied like literally secretly. Um, I, it was like early cell phone days and I would during my free period go off like into the woods on campus and do my interviews on like on my phone in the woods um, and told the folks at Gilman that I, I basically couldn't come back to interview because I, I didn't think I could miss any school out there. Um, and there were no breaks coming up. And so did the whole thing, you know, it was, I, I, I don't like being like sneaky. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like I was being sneaky during that. It was probably about a, a week or 10 day period. Um, and, and I'd never met the, the headmaster, John McGill. And, and, and he took a chance on me, um, and that was really meaningful, having the opportunity to 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 come back and work um, under those circumstances. Certainly felt kind of honored. Um, mm-hmm. But but that's that's how it happened. That's the story. So yeah. two years at Montgomery. Two and then, years. And then yeah. you came back in twenty ten. Uh, well, it would have been two two thousand six, two thousand seven. So the class of twenty ten. Oh, okay. So those was, kids, yeah, gotcha. their freshman year was was 2006 2007 and you were teaching in the math department coaching football football and baseball at the time and baseball what was it like coming back to gilman where there's probably a a fair number of your old teachers here with you now as colleagues yeah um unbelievably meaningful and and very very humbling um so some of the teachers were were very warm to me and and were very clear kind of at the from the start like you're my colleague now don't call me sir don't call me ma'am like i'm whatever and and i think that was harder for me than it was for them Mm -hmm. to, to make that adjustment but but had some really important role models of mine that i was teaching and and coaching with you know including one like you know literally in my office and 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 tried just as much as I could just to listen, right? And and to be like in proximity to them and and watch and 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 hear how they taught and how they coached and and just trying to to, to gather as much information in as I could. Um, certainly in those early in those early years, that was really meaning it was, you know, you're you're working with in a lot of cases like you're like the people you idolize as a kid. Mm-hmm. And and that was hard, really, really humbling to, to do. Mm-hmm. Were there any coaches or teachers, and I've said this before, that even, even coaches that I've had 
who I didn't maybe even like that much. Yeah. Now that I'm coaching and teaching, I kind of feel myself repeating or conceptualizing things that they said as true. Even if you, you know, even if you didn't like to coach that much yeah. in college or what, whatever, some of their lines and some of their quotes are very much true that have rubbed off on me. And that, and those are those are coaches and teachers that maybe I didn't like that much, but they're teachers that I love that I've kind of implemented into my style now as a as a teacher yeah. and coach. Do you ever find yourself repeating or using? Um, philosophies or quotes from teachers and coaches that you've had over the yeah. years so i think i've i've pulled more from people i like than people i i, I dislike yep. um so so yeah I, you know i ruthie williams um was my junior year math teacher and she was i had two incredible math teachers junior year senior year here and they couldn't have been more different right so ruthie was like the warmest teacher you could possibly have, right? So, so she had this bulletin board in the classroom and it was just covered with stuff about us that had nothing to do with math, right? So, you know, she'd pull clippings out of the newspaper. She'd have pictures of us um, playing in games or, you know, playing an instrument or performing, um, you know, things from our, from our homes. And I, um, you know, the tradition for me of, of baking cookies for my advisees on their birthday, right? I stole from her. Um, and, and, and I wasn't her advisee, but but I'd come to school on my birthday and she'd have a brownie for me. Mm. Um, and even as a teacher, when I came back, she remembered. And the two years we worked together, you know, would very sort of like nonchalantly leave a leave a birthday card in my mailbox. And she made me feel so welcomed and so encouraged. And, and that she's influenced me incredibly heavily mm -hmm. um, as a teacher in terms of how I interact with students on things that don't deal with on like non-content areas, right? I want to be just like Ruthie. I want, I want my students to feel as wanted as she made me feel when I was a student. Um, so then the following year um, was, was probably the best math teacher I've ever had, a woman named Lorraine Hutchinson. And, and she was maybe 90 pounds and terrifying. I mean, she, she was one of those teachers that like you got into class and you were like afraid to like be sitting the wrong way or like afraid to, to like have your pencil on the wrong side of your desk. Like everything had to be just so. And, and yet somehow she, so, so on one hand, right, we're all scared to death of her. And on the other hand, like there's no doubt in any of our minds that, that this woman cares about us on an unbelievably mm -hmm. deep level and just has a, a very different way maybe of showing it than, than Ruthie did and, and learned so much from her about having really clear expectations and really high expectations and that she told us, right, there was no negotiating, there was no back and forth, this is what I expect from you, and you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And it, it worked, right? I mean, all of us performed in that class at an incredibly high level. Um, because so first off, she's an excellent teacher, but also part of that was her being really clear, and really demanding of us as students. And I think that contrast between the two is is something that stuck with me. Um, as, as I've grown up as a teacher. Yeah, 
Well, the second, uh, both examples are awesome. And the second example might be more of what I mean by like like a teacher that during the time when you had him or her as a teacher, it's like, why does my pencil have to be straight? Why am yeah. I so scared of this woman? Yeah. You know, why is she expecting all these details to be perfect? And then a couple of years later, you're you're in that position and you're realizing because they matter, yeah. the details matter and, you know, the, the little things matter. And yeah. that strict teacher that I had was right all along. Well, the best example of that, my advisor um, was a guy named Peter Julius. Um, and he was chair of the history department and he taught me freshman, sophomore, and junior year. Um, and the freshman history class was really pretty easy. Um, but sophomore uh, sophomore year, I was in a, a AP European history class with a bunch of seniors. Um, and I was way over my head uh, as an underclassman in with, in with those guys. And he <laughs> it didn't matter. It seems like what I wrote, he never liked it. Like I, I, it was just impossible for me to write a good essay for him. And in my mind, right, and this is like a perfect like 15 or 16 year old mind, like, can't you give me an advisee discount? Like, can't you just like, I don't even, like, don't give me an A, just like give me not the worst grade on my report card by like a full six point, like it shouldn't be six points lower than my next worst grade. Um, and, and, and the answer was like unequivocally no. Yeah. Like, like this is the standard and just meet it. And I worked harder in that class than I've worked in, in any other class I've taken um, and, and raised my grade a ton in the second semester. So still my lowest grade, but, but I like managed to close the gap. And that's probably, first off, the, the grade I'm proudest of ever in my life um, because I had to work so hard for it. And, and second, you know, again, didn't realize it at the time, but he taught me to read and write. Like not like I could, I could read the the symbols, right? And I could like write sentences, but he's the one who actually taught me to do it well um, and, and took his class again senior year. And, and at that point knew what I was getting into um, and just loved it. And we've stayed in touch. I, we talked um, a half hour. He, he I finished my, my Saturday morning runs when he's walking on the track. That's great. And so a lot of times I'll, I'll finish up and go and we'll walk together. Um, and, and unbelievably in, impactful teacher Hmm. and you know what not much more important than being able to read and write and and i he's he taught me more about that than anybody else how did he how did he teach you to read and write when you say he taught you to read and write was it he he pushed you to look closer at what you were reading or pointed out specific details about it or how did such a strict mentality translate to teaching reading and writing which is funny because if you met him, strict would not be the word you would associate he with a, him. He was a tough grader. Really tough grader. Um, so we had the same, everything we read, the essay prompt was always the same. And the essay prompt was, why did this person take the time to write this thing? And I'd never thought about, so first off, I didn't understand why we were reading fiction in a history class. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd never thought about books through that perspective. Mm-hmm. right? So like putting one of these things together takes... I'm sure like thousands of hours of work, right? And they could do all these other things. And yet they chose, this person chose to sit down and write these words. And it was our job as the reader to figure out why. Mm -hmm. And what it meant was that it caused me not just to think about 
like the story that that the person the author is telling but but really think about there's got to be some deeper meaning mm-hmm. right we're not reading hop on pop right we're reading something that that the author thought was really important that that, that person's trying to send a message to us as the reader and that it's our job as the reader kind of to play detective and and to figure out what are the words between the words right the lines between the lines and that that was what taught me how to read mm-hmm. and then in terms of, of writing was was to get those thoughts and convey them in a way that was convincing to somebody else right to, so now i'm wearing that hat right now i'm choosing to write a paper about this particular book and like because mr julius said so is not a good enough like reason to be sitting down and writing there had to be something deeper um and and I and that was really impactful. Yeah, in, in terms of my thought process, these two things go hand in hand: the reading part and the writing part. Because yeah. if you're not thinking about why this author wrote what he or she wrote in this yeah. book or this story, you're not going to think those things when you sit down to write. You're just going to do it for exactly what you said at the beginning of the episode: yeah. is just to check the box. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Are there other teachers here now? Um, that maybe you had uh, as a student that like teachers that teachers or coaches who taught you were when you were yeah. here? So the, yeah, there's still a handful around. So I was um, <clears throat> Dallas Jacobs. I was in his first class um, when he came to Gilman. Um, and, and, and that I was in sophomore geometry. That was fun. Uh, Joe Duncan taught me uh, twice, uh, sophomore and junior year. And, and it's funny, kids are so, so scared of him, I feel like. And, my class, at least, we had a blast. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. It, we did not find him scary, mm-hmm. but 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 we we certainly enjoyed that time together. Uh, and there are a fair fair number of others. We've had so many retirements in the last yeah. maybe two or three years. I've I've lost a bunch of former teachers. Lost is the wrong word. Had a bunch of former teachers um, retire in that time. Mm-hmm. Great. Well. Um... I do want to get to your uh, character program here at Gilman sure. for people. And we were just, that was just getting started last year, right? Maybe? Yeah. What a crazy time to start it. Crazy time to start it. But the, the two or three sessions that we had as a lacrosse program last spring were incredible. And yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you started that and what that's all about. Yeah. So I think kind of two, two thought processes kind of came together. Um, when I was a player here, um, the the character education program was was really closely intertwined in the football program, right? So that was a hugely important part of what we did as a team. It was probably a, a 10 minute segment of practice every day, like literally, you know, five days a week in practice. And then we had about a 30 or 40 minute um, session before games. Um, and, and Joe Ehrman ran them um and pulled a ton of influence from him now now his his personality is very different than mine he's a, a significantly better public speaker than i am he has a more powerful and and i think moving life story than i have but the the idea or the seed probably got planted there um the second influence is i got to a point as a coach where I'd won so many big games and lost so many big games and, and frankly had accomplished more as a coach 
in terms of like quantitative like accomplishments, right? Like things I could put on a piece of paper than I ever thought I would. And recognized that that's not why I teach, right? Like I don't teach so that we can run around after a game and celebrate. And I don't teach so that we can, you know, have a trophy in the case or, or put a, you know, a championship banner up in the arena. And, and that I teach because I want to help the players and help my students um, develop into the people that they want to be. And that as a coach, I think I'd lost sight of that. I, I, I became much too invested and much too interested in the scoreboard and and too divested in their well-being as humans. And so those two things kind of came together and and made me think, well, why don't why don't I I do both of these things, right? Why don't I take you know some of those ideas that 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 Joe brought um when when Tim Holly was the football coach, Johnny Foreman ran something similar, take some of the stuff that that he developed, pull some ideas from other people, um, some on campus, some not, that, that I really respect, bring them together and then build a program that can be something that all the athletes here at Gilman share. Uh, because one of the things that's hard as an athlete is you, you almost never get to watch your classmates play. Right? So like as a, as a football player here, um, I never got to see a soccer. You know, as a baseball player, right, the, the only lacrosse I got to watch was between innings, I'd be out in in, um, in right field and like watching the, it used to be the baseball and lacrosse fields were next to each other and like watching under the scoreboard what was going on in the lacrosse game. I, yeah. you know, I've- Just a couple plays, you don't really get to see everything. Exactly, I may be the only kid ever to, to, to graduate from Gilman who never watched a like start to finish lacrosse game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it was because everything conflicted with baseball and that this could be something that that would be common for all the kids who were playing sports, that they could have a shared experience that that I think they want, but that their schedules prevent them from having. Mm. What are some of those lessons that you try to emphasize or convey in this program? Yeah, I think the most important thing is I don't I don't ever want to tell a kid what to do. Right. I don't want to tell him what he should be when he grows up. And, and, and I think what's, what I've tried really hard to do is ask questions that they've not been asked before and ask questions that are sometimes personal questions, questions where they're looking inside themselves and also questions where they're looking at the world around them, whether that's looking at their family, whether that's looking at their friends, um, looking at um, role models, looking sometimes at negative role models, um, to get them to look really carefully at those interactions and and to think, what are things that I like and, and therefore things that I want to try to develop in myself? And what are things that, that I dislike and things that I need to, to work to avoid? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is, you know, big overarching principle what I'm trying to do is, is to get them to think really deeply about themselves, about how they relate to the people around them, both on their team and, and in other sort of groups. And then, um, you know, try to work towards those goals, work towards that, that better version of themselves. Um, 
No, but that's interesting because we were, we were watching some Joe Rogan before yeah. the podcast just to get an idea of what, what a podcast is. And um, I was watching last night one of my favorite guests of all time that Rogan has on his podcast is Jordan Peterson. And I, don't, okay. I don't know if you know much about I don't, no. Jordan Peterson's one of like my, my favorite guys because he, he puts a lot of his – he's a professor, a, a psychology professor at University of Toronto, and he's had books come out recently, and he's kind of – become famous later in his life. Um, but anyway, on, on the first episode of the podcast with Jordan Peterson, maybe it's not the first one. He's had him on a couple times, okay. but uh, maybe the second episode with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, one of my favorite kind of stories that Peterson tells, and I'm not sure he's an athlete himself, but he's got the psychological piece and he talks about character and sports. And he tells a story... Um, and I'll, I'll send you the clip after of his son is playing in a championship hockey game and it's a really good game. Both, both teams are pretty equally matched. Um, his son's team has a star player on the team and the other team comes down at the end of the game, scores a goal. His son's team loses four to three and that was it. And, And it was a good game. It was good competition. Just turned out that way. And the, and the son and the best player on his son's team comes off the hockey rink and throws his helmet and smashes his, you know, yeah. uh, hockey, you know, um, hockey stick. And the dad and the parents come over and instead of like saying, dude, like clean your act up and handle a loss the right way. It was a good game anyway. You know, be good parents. The parents are like, yeah, the ref blew that game. Like you, you're an all star. Uh, you, you guys deserve to win. That was BS, whatever. And Jordan Peterson's point is he talks about how when pa- when parents and coaches say it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. There's like a deep ethic in that line. And what it is is you're training, playing sports, you're training for life pretty much because life is a series of games or a series of championships. And if you show up to a game and you act like that, no one's gonna wanna play with you ever again. Like you're not gonna be invited to to games, you're not gonna be coached, no one's gonna wanna play with you. So that quote, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game, is to set yourself up for the series of games that life is and that's how you really become a winner or a champion in life is you know how to handle yourself through those character values that you try to instill in your program by practicing in games like handling yourself through winning or losing the right way you know sharing the ball not being a diva on the ice hockey team um, playing the right way you know i think it's interesting frankly that in America, athletic teams are part of academic institutions, right? So, so, and, and it's always struck me a little bit weird, like why does Gilman have a lacrosse team? Like why does Gilman have a football team? Why isn't that something separate, right? Because, because I think if the goal really is sports-specific skill development, and if the goal really is winning, then, then athletics should be something that's separate from an educational institution. But so long as as those things are operating under the umbrella of a school, the the goal has got to be education rather than winning. And and I I would argue right if you do things the right way, then you're going to win a lot of games. But but that winning should be 
the byproduct of doing things properly and not the goal unto itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that certainly working at a place like this and certainly um, thinking about the role of athletics in our life here at school, we, we have to keep in mind that, that we are a school and that when we go out to practice, you know, tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock, that we're teachers, right? And we should be teaching. And certainly it's going to look different on the track or on the lacrosse field or, or on the basketball court than it will in the English classroom. But that still we need to be teaching students something that's valuable beyond I'm going to make you run faster mm -hmm. and beyond, right, I'm going to get your, you know, your shot more efficient or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not the product. It's the process. It's not the result. Yeah. It's the process. It's you're refining your character through sports. Right. Oh, and also it, through math class and also through English class. Right. I mean, it, you don't read Shakespeare because you're going to be a Shakespeare scholar. Right. You said earlier you, you seem to have grown to be a perfectly functioning adult without doing any calculus. You <laughs> I haven't touched it. Right, you don't learn calculus <laughs> to become a like calculus expert. You learn mm -hmm. calculus as part of this growth in training your mind. Mm -hmm. um, and it's gotta be the same with sports or you need to pull sports out from, from out of academic institutions and they need to be something separate, right? That if, if really the only thing that matters is, is winning and losing, then, then they need, to, you need to go the route where they're, you know, professional teams or where they're rec teams or where the mission of those groups is to win football games. And team sports are something that you maybe have more of a focus in since you were team. Yeah, you played although, team sports growing up. So yes, I did. I, I came into running really late in life. I mean, I was, I was you know, grew up loving baseball mm -hmm. um, and, and then realized I, I wasn't all that good at it um, and, and sort of. <laughs> became more of a football focused guy. And, and so I certainly played team sports. That, that's my experience. Although in a lot of ways, the individual sports have incredibly close bonds within those teams. I mean, if you go out and the cross country team and the swimming team are, are two of the closest groups on campus, I think those are really hard wrestling too. Those are really hard sports. Mm -hmm. And even though they're, you know, quote unquote, individual sports, I think those kids have a, have a shared experience that matters to them, mm -hmm. right? Like I know how, I know how hard you worked to get to where you are. And that even though, you know, we don't have a ball and I can't pass it to you, I have an unbelievable amount of respect because I see, I see what you put in, in the in practice that people never see mm -hmm. when, when they just show up and watch you play in games do you um do you speak to those individual do you speak to like the swimming yeah. team too yeah. do you remodel your curriculum for individualized sports versus team sports at all um sometimes mm -hmm. you know I, I mean i wish i wish i had more experience you know last spring was was, was certainly unusual right. um and and the fall but with the fall, no, I mean, I think I think what I did with cross country was pretty similar to what I did with, with football um, because they don't see them. They don't see themselves as individual sports. Mm -hmm. I think if you really talk to a cross country kid, right, if you really talk to Beck or, or Pete Heasters or one of those guys, I don't think. I don't think they view their sport any differently than a, a football player would view his team or a soccer player would view his team. I, 
I, I think that maybe is is an outside projection on those on those groups. Um, when you were here at Gilman, did you kind of have a sense or realize the impact that playing team sports or playing sports in general would have on you going forward? Or is that kind of realized later down the line for you? No, de I mean, de definitely sports were really important to me coming yeah. through. Um, my coaches were very, very important role models um, coming through. I keep in touch, frankly, with a lot of them. Um, I was fortunate to have in incredibly good and impactful coaches. And, and I, I certainly recognized those groups, um, those connections mattered. And that's why, by the way, I'm doing the character ed through athletic teams and not through math classes, mm -hmm. is that there's a sense of trust and there's a sense of shared purpose and value on teams that's very difficult to recreate in a classroom. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the hardest things with talking about character, and this is one of the things we've, we ran into with our Wednesday schedules, right? We wanna have character ed. But if you can't, if you don't walk into a group that already trusts each other, or, or have a shared purpose. Exactly. You can't you can't get past the starting line. And so really I'm taking advantage of those existing that, that kind of existing fertile ground to sort of overlay the lessons on top of them. And that's why and, and this is Joe Orman talked about this all the time. That's why the role of a coach is so important. And that's why I've chosen that vehicle for the character education program. Um is because a lot of that foundation's already been built. So going to Joe Ehrman, what, I have never met him, but I have read Season of Life actually yeah. before I came to Gilman. So I, okay. a, I do have a sense of him and, and some of the things that he emphasized here at Gilman. But what influence, what type of influence, you talked a little bit about it before, but yeah. what type of influence did his role and the football program here at Gilman have on you when you were a student athlete? Yeah, I think so, an, an enormous influence. Um, and he was probably the first person really to talk to me about like manhood as a structure. Right? So we, we live as, I'd lived as a male my whole life, never thinking about what does it mean to be a man? And he spoke very directly and this is one of the main differences um, between our approaches. He was very direct about this is what it means to be a man, and this is what it doesn't mean to be a man. So, and he spoke from a perspective of somebody, first off, who had sort of, you know, gotten to the peak of masculinity, right? So this is, you know, a, you know, however many years, you know, first round draft pick in the NFL, you know played professionally at, you know, 12 or 15 years, um, incredibly successful career um, as a football player. And, and that in our society, in a lot of ways, is the peak, sort of peak masculinity. Mm -hmm. and, and talked about his, his younger brother who, who died of cancer um, when, when Joe was getting started in the league and, and how transformative that experience was on, on Joe in terms of recognizing the the sort of emptiness of his life right so he was living the dream right he's he's playing for the colts you know he can he walks down the street everybody knows who he is he's got the house and the pool and the you know and all this fame and none of it could get his brother out of that hospital bed mm -hmm. and and out of that tragedy and, and out of some tragedy 
um, in his own relationship with his father, um, I think grew this mission, I think is probably the right word for it, to educate boys to be men in this framework of of being loving men and being supportive men and being men who care about the people around them, um, whether that's family members, whether that's teammates, whether that's um, co-workers, or even frankly, strangers on the street. And, and that resonated a lot with me. It's something I'd never thought of before. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be a man? And, 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 and it's been hugely impactful in the way I've tried to live my life and, and the way I see myself, you know, that that's been a standard that I've used to judge myself, you know, even now more than 20 years later. Mm, that's amazing. Um, as a coach yourself now, and as part of the character ed program and a teacher and someone who's really, I, I've described you as devoted and committed and just all in on Gilman and just raising boys and right. helping boys. You're very, I mean, you know, even when I see you just at the table in Carry Hall, I'm just like, you know, this is after after the lunch, right? It's not really the time that you need to be doing that, but you open yourself up and you're like, hey, if you need math help, come see me. And you're, you know, you're on the track, you're on the basketball court, you're everywhere here helping young men become men, just as you said. Um, like, where does this motivation come from for yeah. you? Is it is it all of your experience? And you talked a little bit about maybe at first to get in the door here at Gilman, and it was yeah. a little bit of the guilt, but now that you're here and this is your life, like what what continues to motivate you? Yeah, well, we're servants, right? And and I think I think people who are educators need to recognize that more than anything else, that's our job, that, that we serve the students who are here and that that's become my passion, I think, is finding ways to serve them. And sometimes that means giving them help in math, but but for some of them, that's not what they need, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they need, you know, they're going through a tough patch at home and they just need someone to listen to them, mm-hmm. right? They just need someone to pick up the phone and not say anything and just let them speak um, and listen non-judgmentally. And sometimes they need people to, to hold them accountable um, mm-hmm. when they're not doing the things that they're doing. And and that's what I think gets me out of bed every morning is is this really strong sense of duty that I have to the the young people who are here um, that, that that's my job, right? So, so my job really isn't to teach them pre-calculus and my job isn't really to to get them to win the 100 meter dash that my job really is to is to be a support for them to serve them and and to look out for their best interest and and that's what I try really hard to do every day and and certainly fail often right but but that's my goal right that's that's what I'm trying to do here mm-hmm. yeah and it keeps you I mean, it keeps you coming back every day. It keep like that. That duty will never d- die for you, right? It's like it's always there. Maybe it's not perfect every day, yeah. but you're opening yourself up to it as a teacher, as a coach, as a role model, like you are. Well, I think that's true of any you know any job. You know, it's a job unless there's some deeper sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And and I think if there's a deeper sense of purpose, and it doesn't necessarily need to be you know as a teacher, it can be a lot of things. Um, but I think that's what drives 
people to do things well. Um, you know, we've talked about checkboxes, right? This is the opposite of a checkbox, right? This is I'm devoted, I'm committed, I'm duty bound to do these certain things, not because it's going to end up in my like year end report that Mr. Schubeck writes and not because I'm going to get paid, you know, $7 extra to do it, but, but because I feel a responsibility to this kid to help him with whatever it is he's trying to manage. Yeah. Un unquantifiable. You can't, you can't put a price yeah. tag or a rating or a checkbox even on it. It's just the, a duty, a sense of purpose. Yeah. Awesome. Coach Guline, uh, you brought in a bunch of books. You brought in more books than any other guest has. So Ma maybe, math department, we're big readers. I know, right? <laughs> First math teacher on the podcast and he brings four books. Yeah. Um, maybe we can choose Maybe we could use one book sure. today. Yeah. Um, to so about. yeah, let's do. Um, they all look interesting. I mean. Yeah. Well, right. I I tried to bring good ones. Um, let, let's do. Um, let's do this one because I think this is is probably the one that's most um, most fitting with the conversation we've had. Okay. Yeah. Um, do I hold it up? Is yeah, that... just to the camera. It's great. <laughs> okay. Um, what is, what so, is this? Yeah, "Heart Is a Lonely Hunter" um, by Carson McCullers, um, and I think even we talked about chance. How I even came to this book is totally by chance. I've gotten, um, started to enjoy art as, as, an, as, you know, sort of an adult and was down at the BMA probably three or four years ago at this point. And um, there was a, an exhibit there, one of those traveling exhibitions, and I hated it, like it's terrible. Um, but but one of, the, um, one of the, the pieces was this backlit photograph um, of people in a submarine, so staged, and one of the people in the submarine was, was reading this book. And, and I was just so curious. Like, well, first, like, I don't like this at all, but like, there must be something about this book that's like, worth at least picking up and reading. And, and I, I'm not sure I've ever been as like, connected with or moved by a set of characters as I was um, with, with really so two protagonists um one's a teenage girl and the other is kind of a middle-aged um deaf mute i think i talked about him maybe in the one of the lacrosse character ads mm, yep um and you know and i just felt every page i read it felt like i was reading about me um or reading reading about me in the in the girl, the, the girl named Mick Kelly, which which maybe is, is also interesting that I would identify really strongly um, with a female character. And then the 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 male character, um, the the deaf muted guy, John Singer, um, in so many ways he was the person I wanted to be. And and to to read through it and and to see their lives sort of woven together was really powerful and changed the way I thought about myself in a way that, that books normally don't. Mm. And, and that was so, so like actually reading, it was not just an enjoyable experience, but really a powerful experience and really a transformative experience for me um, to think about how I fit into the context of the novel. How, did you rethink yourself through this book? What yeah. did you think about? So, so, so Singer um, is is a deaf mute, and so on the surface, right, really, you would think limited, and yet he's the best listener in town. 
Um, and, and that's what I talked about with the yep. lacrosse team. Um, and that's what I tried to take from him <clears throat> is here's a guy that biologically can't hear and biologically can't speak. And yet anyone in this little town in Georgia who's got a problem, they go to his little, this little tiny apartment. He lives in the house where, um, where Mick, the girl lives, um, rents out a room upstairs. And he, um, so his, he communicates with his hands, right? So he signs and he writes. And yet when people speak to him, he actually sits on them and he sits on them. So he won't be tempted to interrupt them. And, and it's his way of being like totally present and totally um, engaged with the person that's speaking to him. And then when he responds, almost always he responds with a question. Right. Or he responds with something rather than giving them advice. He responds by giving them something to think about. And, you know, and, and so I think a lot of the kind of way the character ed program is developed is, is due to him um, because he doesn't tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. And yet through his these really carefully crafted responses, the people walk away almost knowing what it is they should do. Um, but but he gave them the space to find out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's those goals, um, being an incredibly present and attentive listener. Um, I'm really lucky, right? I, I can actually hear, but he has to really focus, right, to read lips. And, and then responding in a way that's going to let people sort of learn for themselves rather than, um, rather than just telling them what to do were really powerful for me so important as a teacher too because i sometimes i catch myself just yeah. going off about something that i'm passionate about that i like that i'm noticing about the text that we're reading especially on zoom no one they've been listening to this all yeah. day they've been listening to people all day talk to them the input is just yeah. coming at you know at them from every direction it's so much better and i try to work on this just ask a question because that forces you to think and yeah. come up with your own answer yeah, and I think oftentimes when students come to us with a concern, with a problem, our default reaction is to speak when I think really it should be to listen, right? And rather than telling a kid, oh, when I, when I was your age, this happened, or have you thought about this, um, tell me more about what's going on. Like, tell me, like, talk to me more about what, like, what caused this problem? What's the background? Um, trying to get them to speak and, and get to the bottom of it sort of on their own and and with me as this as the listener rather than the speaker i found to be much more effective and it certainly is, is something i'm you know i'm working on as a um as a teacher as an educator yeah and just as a person listening yeah. is so hard a lot of people just jump to speak right away and respond right away yeah. there's a quote ernest hemingway has a quote about listening that i really like it's like you know Whenever someone's speaking to you, you're always thinking about what you're going to say next. Yeah. Most people never listen. Yeah. And it's true. It's like it's our default setting is what are we going to say next? How are we going to respond? But you're never fully there, present, listening. It's hard. It's a hard skill to build. And I think, honestly, the response, certainly kids that are they're struggling emotionally, the response doesn't matter. What matters is that somebody took enough time to listen and that somebody that you show you're caring through listening, not through speaking. And that and that that's where the power comes is that this person cares deeply about me because he's going to sit quietly on the other end of the phone or on the other end of the room and let me process, let me talk about 
the, this thing that's really bothering me without making it about him. Mm-hmm. And, and that, it took me a really long time to learn. Um, but, but that's what I'm trying to do now. Excellent. And it comes from a book that you saw in the BMA in yeah. an installation that you didn't like. And yeah. now it's, you know, now it's your book. I want to read it go. now. It's good. I'm going to check it out. Cool. Uh, Coach Guline, it's been a lot of fun. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on. And Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. It was, it was a great time. Um, I thought you were going to bake some goods. That's yeah. The, that's yeah. On, that's I'll, on I'll, the, I'll bring some in next time. That's on the next episode. Because right. I remember... I think it was last year I went yeah. to your advisory for yeah, the first oh yeah. time and you were, you were cooking and, and or you were baking and then we were, um, the album covers, we were trying yeah. to choose which album covers. That's something that we didn't get to much today is yeah. your, your advisory is pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah, soon hopefully we'll be able to actually have advisory. I know, hopefully we'll be in the same <laughs> room together. But, yeah, uh, that'll be good. Uh, what's your favorite thing to bake? To bake or to eat? To bake. Um, I think you did banana bread, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I so, gosh, I don't know. I um, probably. I so I make it's it's like a um. I, I call it apple pot pie. So so basically, imagine like apple pie filling covered with like a sweet biscuit dough and baked in a loaf pan. Um, <laughs> sounds delicious. It's a lot of fun. Wow. How about to eat? What's your favorite thing to eat? Um, so I think my favorite. Of the things I bake, um, so I make um, so so like white chocolate macadamia nut cookies are fairly common. So imagine those, but with toasted almonds instead of the macadamia nuts, mm. and in a like a brownie form instead of a cookie, mm. is is probably my my favorite to eat. But so, like horribly, it's like a sugar bomb. Yeah. It's like not not good. It's for a treat. Me. It, yeah, very much a treat. It's the end of the day. It's the end of a you know full day on Zoom. You there you go. A, you gotta have a treat. Yeah. Um, Coach Guline, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks for having me.